1: 7 36 AM, you're listening to the Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Philip C. and Wong Xiao Ning. The Israel-Palestine issue is in the spotlight again this week as the ICJ conducts hearings on the legality of the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories from February nineteenth to the twenty-sixth.
0: The case stems from a United Nations General Assembly resolution passed in December 2022, which asked the ICJ to consider how the rights of Palestinians are being affected by the occupation as well as what the responsibilities of the UN and its member states were in the face of these violations.
2: The proceedings are unprecedented in that 52 countries will present arguments in the case, including Malaysia. This is the largest number of parties to participate in any single ICJ case since 1945. However, given the geopolitical dynamics at play, Can a ruling by the ICJ materially affect what's happening on the ground in Palestine? Joining us to discuss this is
1: Juliet McIntyre, a law lecturer at the University of South Australia. Juliet, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, the case being heard this week is substantially different from the case brought by South Africa against Israel on allegations of genocide in Gaza. What are the aims of countries backing the proceedings this week? Why have they brought this case to the ICJ?
3: Good morning. Um, Yes, well, as you just heard, uh, the General Assembly is the organisation that has requested this opinion from the court. And when you have an advisory opinion, all states uh, who are members of the General Assembly are entitled to put their views before the court. So obviously, given um, the uh, nature of what's going on at present, but also the long term uh, occupation and the flow on effects of that for regional security and other uh, significant matters. Clearly, we've got a lot of states that are interested in making sure that the court is able to hear uh, their views on this particular issue.
0: So why has Israel declined to attend this hearing, even though they were represented in the genocide case?
3: Yeah, that's right. So with the genocide case, um, Israel takes the position that it has not committed genocide or any related acts, and so it's defending itself um, from the accusations put forward by South Africa. Here, on the other hand, Israel has said that it's inappropriate for the court to even hear uh, arguments about this and to render an opinion. It says that this is a political question which needs to be resolved through negotiation and that the court shouldn't get involved at all.
2: So what then are the possible scenarios on how the court could decide? Does precedent provide any guidance for us? It does, actually,
3: because 20 years ago in the Israeli wall um, opinion, the was quite strong in stating that um, Israel was an illegal occupier of Palestinian territory, uh, that the war was unlawful and that states had various um, obligations as a result, including not recognising uh, any of the effects of Israel's acts as being um know, legal. So I think here we can see this is sort of like wall 2.0. The court's going to have the opportunity to look at the development uh, in the situation in, in Palestine over the last 20 years and it can consider a much broader range of um, legal impacts as well. So it can look at the role of human rights law, international humanitarian law, that is the laws of war, and other uh, applicable law, including Palestinian right to self-determination. So I think we're going to see quite a wide-ranging opinion covering um, the full suite of um, obligations in this area.
1: But I think the question then comes up, will the ruling actually have any material impact? Because in the case that you cited from 2004 on the wall, it didn't stop Israel from building and fortifying that wall. Uh, it is The the decision will be a non-binding advisory opinion from what uh, I understand. So how much impact could it actually have?
3: Yeah, that's correct. It is a non-binding opinion. So it's um, It's in the form of a legal advice, if you will, to the General Assembly. So Kind of like with the wall opinion in that case, while it didn't stop Israel from doing uh, what it was doing on the ground, what it did mean was that other states uh, had a basis for, for example, refusing to trade uh, in relation to goods that were produced um, by Israel in the occupied territories. So there are flow on economic effects uh, in particular for um, Israel, but, yes, this is not binding order that will um, require Israel to do anything.
0: Now, separately, South Africa recently petitioned the ICJ for additional emergency measures to safeguard Palestinians at the risk of a ground assault in Rafa. Why did the court decline to take further action on this?
3: Yeah, it was obviously quite controversial, um, but not entirely unexpected, because in essence, over the um, couple of weeks between when the court issued its original provisional measures order and then when South Africa went back to the court to ask for for more orders, nothing had really changed. As terrible as the ground assault in Rafa um, would be, uh, if, if it goes ahead in terms of impacts on civilians, the court has already said that um, Israel needs to ensure that it's upholding all of its obligations under the Genocide Convention. So Israel's already bound to do that. Um, and the court can't really say much more other than you need to uphold those obligations at this stage. Unfortunately for the court, once they've made their order, their role really ceases and the question of enforcement um, becomes a political question for other states.
2: Which begs the question at the end of the day, is the ICJ a court which really has no powers, I mean limited powers, except coming up with judgments like this?
3: Yeah, it depends I suppose on how you th- about uh, the role of a court uh, in settling disputes. Even for domestic courts, um, their powers are limited when you have a recalcitrant um, person who refuses to abide by the law. Um, we can think of various types of um, examples. I don't know, family law, the great one, um, you know, divorce divorce, uh, arguments and so on where Mm. people won't pay child support for example this is an analogy that often comes up so the court is not ineffectual because the court resolves a huge range of different kinds of disputes including really controversial disputes as to territory which would lead to international conflicts but then don't become international conflicts because the court has resolved them Mm. but you do have these kinds of moments in um the international legal system where extreme uh, conduct is taking place and states may be just ignoring what the court has ordered it to do. And in those state instances, the court's power becomes more limited. Um, but obviously we do see as well, you know, South Africa uh, bringing the case in the first place. I think there are enormous numbers of states around the world who believe in the international rule of law and see it upheld and they see the court as being a part of the, uh, the mechanism for achieving that.
1: So, Juliet, in the uh, months ahead, what should we be looking out for? I think it's going to take some time for uh, the hearings on the uh, legality of the occupation. That decision is going to take a while. But there's also the upcoming one-month deadline for um, reporting on the genocide case, yeah?
3: Yes, that's correct. Um, So, the uh, advisory opinion, yeah, that's going to take quite some time. Um, As I said, it's very wide-ranging and the court's going to have a lot of material to get through before it can reach uh, its decision there. As for the genocide case, yes, the deadline for the one month reporting back to the court is um, fast approaching. Now, these reports are not normally made public, so we won't necessarily see Mm. what Israel has to say about its compliance, but um, Israel may choose to make that report public of its own volition um, in order to demonstrate what it has been doing to uh, uphold the court's orders. So at this stage, we wait and watch.
0: It's very interesting to see so many different countries give their perspectives right to it. What is the, you know, principles behind all these different countries, you know, when you think about their their cases there?
3: Yeah, it, it is really interesting. Advisory opinions are quite unique. We don't always see courts doing this where they're basically just hearing from anyone who's interested, essentially, and then rendering their opinion on what the law is. Um, I mean, here we've got... Um, suppose you might say a (laughs) one-sided situation where even though there are 52 states and three international organizations appearing before the court, only two of those states, the United States uh, and Fiji for some reason, um, take a position that is supportive of Israel's Mm. uh, conduct in the occupied Palestinian territories. So we'll see um, if states make uh, they'll, they'll focus on different areas of, in terms of their presentations, things that they consider to be particularly important. So, for example, the right to self-determination or the breach of various rules of uh, humanitarian law. But um, all in all, the, the overall, I suppose, vibe, if you will, for want of a better word, uh, is one where states recognise that the occupation of Palestine is unlawful and they are calling on the court to um, make a statement to that effect.
1: Juliet, thanks very much for speaking with us. That was Juliet McIntyre, Law Lecturer with the University of South Australia, helping us understand what's happening at the International Court of Justice this week and other things that we can keep an eye out when it comes to uh, the international legal aspect of the conflict in Gaza.
2: Yeah, our very own Foreign Minister Muhammad Hassan is set to lead the Malaysian delegation to The Hague in the Netherlands. He will deliver his oral submission on February 22nd. They are one of the many countries participating. All right, it's
1: 7.47 in the morning. We're heading into some messages. But when we come back, we are going to be discussing um, Sarawak's aim to be a developed state by 2030 and uh, the foundation that has been laid. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9.
0: You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.